Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our pulpit minister, Mike Johnson, as he brings today's lesson. The question for tonight, based on our topic for the Day of Mercy, I will tell you right up front, is not an easy topic to deal with. But we're going to approach it in a way that will have implications not just for this topic, but for other, basically any other topic that we might discuss. First of all, let's begin this way. Debating is a very fascinating thing. It's a fascinating thing because you have to pay attention, and you have to hear, you have to respond, and when you're doing so in a proper way, you can have a really good debate. But what happens when someone in the debate begins to lose? They start trying other things to do. One of those is called ad hominem. That means simply to the man. When we're having a debate and we're addressing a topic, one person might feel that he or she is losing and therefore not addressing the topic, but turns to the other person in the debate and begins to talk about them or undermine them, turning the focus of the debate from the topic to the person. These kinds of things happen in debate all the time. One of the things true uh, that, that also is true about a debate is whoever gets to define the terms in the debate is going to win the debate every time. Whatever the topic is, when you agree as to what the words mean, now you can have a discussion. But when one person gets to decide what they mean, now you have to fit all of your answers into his or her definitions. doesn't make any sense. So debate is a very interesting thing to do. And this topic has been and currently is being debated in a religious way in very many contexts. Therefore, it comes up and we need at least to be able to think about it, to examine it. And if not, find an answer. Find a way to get an answer. And that's my main focus. As it relates to eternal punishment, is eternal punishment contradictory to the mercy of God? If mercy is not getting what you deserve, then if God gives someone eternal punishment, is that then, does that say that God is not merciful in the end? In fact, He has no mercy for those people. Well, that's the question. I read today of a person who posed this idea in trying to understand that question and its answer. And the question was this way. In a judge, in a courtroom, when the person has been tried and is guilty, the judge turns to the guilty person and said, 
How long did it take you to commit this crime? And based on the answer, that will be the amount of time for the punishment. Well, now, how much sense does that make? None, right? And yet, isn't that what happens in this discussion? Because it's framed like this. And it is troubling. Are you telling me that? I live less than 100 years here. And if I'm not in a good relationship with the Lord, I will spend an eternity in punishment. Those who don't think that that is fair and right are actually saying, we get to decide how long the punishment is based on how long we lived. We don't do that in any other context. But people want to do that here. We also hear a lot about fairness. What's fair? Doesn't seem fair that God would do that. But once again, it is important that we define the terms. Because the real question is, what does God say is fair as a definition? What does God say about eternal punishment? Those are the things that I want us to consider for the next few minutes. First of all, mercy should never be interpreted as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Mercy in the Bible is never considered to be, oh, don't worry about it, God is so merciful that He will just... Look over it. He'll set it aside. There is nothing for you to be concerned about because it's actually get out of jail free. Look at Romans chapter 9, if you will, for just a few minutes or a, a moment or two. Look at verse 15. We'll start in 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. It is always dangerous to look at a topic in one setting without a lot of background. That's what preaching is about. Preaching is about background. All of the time, preaching is about background. Things that we've discussed before. Things that are going on. An understanding of Scripture. We don't have time to talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart simply to say. God did what he did, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And as God was doing what he was doing, and Pharaoh's heart was being hardened, God willfully did to Pharaoh what he did as punishment, but Pharaoh willfully hardened his heart. God does not have a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's going to punish. Mercy is true, but 
That doesn't mean that all things that are evil and wrong will one day just be overlooked because God is merciful. It just doesn't compute. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And I want you to notice with me how God is dealing with this topic in dealing with this punishment of God or this punishment that eternal punishment is going to have someday and what it will involve. Start in verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cause of the cross of Christ. There were these Gentiles who were coming into Christianity and the Jewish Christians wanted them to be circumcised. Paul said, they're persecuting you. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. They're not keeping the feasts. They're not following those orders anymore. They've come out of Judaism. But they desire you to be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Then look at verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. God will punish. It's not a get out of jail free card. But He tells us how we can get His mercy. As many as walk according to what He says you get the mercy of God. So, number two. God is not a mystery. Meaning, God has revealed. He's told us who He is. Now, do I understand everything about God? Certainly not. None of us does. But every one of us knows who God is to the degree that He has revealed Himself. We could spend a lot of time. God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 8. God is good, Psalm 145 and verse 9. God is merciful, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. God does not overlook sin, Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. And God is just. Romans chapter 3. Now, that's His nature. I understand His nature. That's who God is. And God is going to act according to His nature. He's told us who He is, and He tells us what He does, what He has done and what He does. God acts in accord with His nature. God will not act in a way that is opposite of what His nature says that He is. So God's nature is not a mystery. We may not understand every detail, but it's not a mystery. It's not a secret. God's actions 
are not a mystery. They're not a secret. Because according to Scripture, he is going to do exactly what he says is his nature. It will be consistent. Therefore, here's what I know. Acts 10 and verse 34. God shows no partiality. God is not going to judge this person this way and this person this way. He is not going to act in judgment the way many times that we do. Because we say this action is worse than this one. We make a judgment call. God does not. Number two, God looks at the hearts of people. 1 Samuel 16, you remember when God sent Samuel to go and find the next king of Israel in the house of Jesse. And these fine, strapping young men came walking by, and he goes, that's got to be him, that's got to be him. And God said, stop. God doesn't look on man as man does. God looks on the heart. So God, in making his judgments, in laying out his mercy, or in laying out his punishment, is looking at the heart in combination with the actions. I can't see hearts. You can't see hearts. God does. Number three, as per his nature, God does not desire anyone to be lost. 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9. I want you to notice something. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and I believe it's verse number 4. Where it says, backing up to 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. God does not want anyone to be lost. Now, this desire of God, God does not desire anyone to be lost. God desires all to be saved. Two different words. First, or 2 Peter 3 verse 9. God does not intend for anyone to be lost. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. God wishes, desires, wants everyone to be saved. God's intention is not for people to be lost. His wish, His desire is for people to be saved because that is the nature of God. God, in telling us His nature and in telling us of what He does, then He says, Romans chapter 10, everyone has a chance to be saved. If you hear the message presented you can be saved. That's his wish. That's his intent. But we all get to make our own choices now. With respect to God's mystery, 
I like the words of Genesis 18 in verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It's a rhetorical question because he will. Given his nature, given what he said he will do, it's going to be right. Now, I believe that every one of us here, online or present, believe that God's going to do what's right. But there have been countless numbers of people who see a contradiction between the eternal condemnation or punishment and the nature of God, as though if he did this, then he would not be doing what is right. In the 1800s, an atheist by the name of Bertrand Russell made that argument. God can't be this eternal punishment is so opposite to the presented nature of God that he decided to be an atheist. Very many have picked up on this concept. Certain religious groups in their own books or creeds or Bibles have changed the language of eternal punishment and destruction into Words like setting aside, causing not to exist, to soften the blow of eternal punishment. I get the problem. I understand the difficulty. And I wish any one of us would that eternal punishment would not be true. And yet, dare I wish for something to be different than what God said that it is? If you came here tonight, if you're online tonight, expecting the definitive answer to the question, does eternal punishment contradict the nature of God's mercy? You're not going to get a full answer. But I'm going to give you a full way to answer. I want to begin in James chapter 3 and verse 1. And I want us to understand. Here James says, Do not many of you become teachers knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation. Now I ask you just in common sense for a minute, in this text that he is giving, I ask you, do you think James is saying we don't need teachers in the church? I would encourage very few of you ever to teach. Well, if that's the case, then we should quit asking for teachers. Which, by the way, we need teachers. We need teachers continually. We need teachers in our college group. We need teachers in our adults. We need teachers in kids' classes. We need people to step up and volunteer to teach. Don't be using this passage to say, oh, I can't. 
because God doesn't want me to be a teacher. James 3 verse 1. Not what he says. Here's what I think he's saying. Do not many of you seek to become teachers, meaning you become the authority on that particular topic or that thing as though you are the one who's going to make the decision. We have to be careful what we teach. I don't think he's saying don't teach. I think he's saying be careful when you teach that you support your teaching with Scripture. Otherwise, you're going to receive condemnation. We're going to start new classes next Sunday. And in that quarter, one of the classes that we're going to be studying is Bible authority. And in Bible authority, one of the things that I want us to understand is this. I need to figure out what does Scripture allow me to teach? Now you think about that for a minute. What does Scripture allow me to teach? And if we start answering Bible questions with that approach, how does it change things? Well, I can teach what the Bible authorizes, and where the Bible has not spoken, then we all get to make our own decisions, but they better not contradict what's been taught in Scripture. I really want to encourage Christians to have the attitude that says, I want to know what I'm allowed to teach. If I can figure out what I'm allowed to teach then it changes things a little bit. For instance, just using this one topic, because everybody uses this topic when it relates to churches of Christ, I would like for one person to open up the Bible in the New Testament and teach me to use instrumental music in worship to God. Now, all I'm saying is, go to the Bible and show me how I can teach that that's okay. Now, that is the premise by which I want us to operate. What am I allowed to teach? Number two. What I'm allowed to teach better not go beyond what has been taught and what has been written. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul said he wanted them to learn not to go beyond what has been written. What should I teach? What's been written. How can I know what God authorizes me to teach? Because I open up Scripture and I figure out what it is that I'm allowed to teach based on what's been written. Having said that, then here's what I can teach. I can teach that the future will have eternal punishment 
and eternal reward. Matthew chapter 25 teaches both. To the one, he says, you will go into everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's actually 2 Thessalonians 1. To those who are standing there, the goats and the sheep, these shall go away into everlasting destruction, the goats on the left, and the sheep into eternal reward on the right. What can I teach? I can teach what's been written. I can teach that there is eternal reward and there is eternal punishment. And I can teach that because it has been written. And therefore, if I'm trying to figure out what is going to be allowed to teach, then I better find out what's been written. Number two, I can teach what Matthew 11 teaches. Some will be punished with many stripes and some with few. I can teach that because that's what is written in Scripture. And I don't have a problem with that because God wrote it and I get to teach it. And if I can read it, then I can teach it. Finally, look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know what else I can teach? People can kill people, but only God can destroy a soul. Here's what's interesting. The text does not say God kills the soul. He says he destroys the soul. It seems, therefore, to be different from kill. Cease to exist. Kill on this earth. Destroy in eternity. Here's the point. I don't know what the details of eternal destruction are. I know it says eternal fire. I know it says the worm does not die. I know all of those terms. But here's what I also know. Only Jesus has ever experienced what it is truly like to be absolutely separated from God. The mental anguish, the soul-piercing weeping of not being in the presence of God. And when Jesus says, eternally separated from God, whatever that means, whatever details that involves, described in Scripture as fire, gnashing of teeth, 
whatever that involves, I don't want it. See, why then do people even care about that question? One, because we, we're kind people. We don't want anybody to suffer unjustly. I get that. But two, I fear that people want that question answered and they talk about it because they're trying to figure out something. Here's what I think they're trying to figure out. If I can convince myself that eternal destruction is merely ceasing to exist, then I'm going to make a judgment call. Do I want to just live any way I want to live, do everything I want to do in this earth, and then just cease to exist? Am I willing to take that risk? But if I decide the eternal punishment is in fact eternal suffering, whatever it means, all of a sudden this choice is not that difficult. Let's just do what's right. And not even be concerned about this over here. The eternal destruction part. So I think the real question is, what's my motive? I'm willing on the details to let God handle that because I still know. It may be that this idea of some punish more than others is true. Although, what happens when the amount of time that God sets for you runs out? What happens to you then? Do you just get to go to heaven because it's been cleaned out of you? That's what one group teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that. So even those who teach punishment are saying in, in degrees it would seem to say once your time of punishment has run out, whatever that is, then you cease to exist. We're still back to this, right? I'm willing to live any way I want, and I'll put up with this because this is really fun. For me, the answer is simply to say, whatever eternal punishment means, I know it means separation from God. And since I don't know how terrible that actually is, just that concept, why do I want to take a chance on it when I have an alternative that is far better? Being with Him forever. I hope that's been helpful. And I hope it encourages us. And mostly... I hope it encourages me. I always tell you I preach to me first, and I'm doing it. After studying the topic and thinking about it in relation to the things that people say, then I certainly want to make the decision more and more to break away from this and not have this weighing thing going on. Enough said. Lessons are yours. The response is yours. Our shepherds will meet you if you need them while we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. 
We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m., followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.